This podcast was recorded on January 21st, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. So as we mentioned today, as we sit here in Zurich, we're recording live a podcast that we'll host on The Sherman Show. Sam Lau and I typically host this from our offices in Los Angeles. We had the privilege of uh, having Dr. Schiller here in Zurich as he's on his way to the World Economic Forum in Davos heading this evening. And so uh, we'd like to welcome everyone to this live event of uh, conversation between Sam, Professor Schiller, and myself. So welcome, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure being here in Zurich, Switzerland. Special guest with Professor Schiller, who is an old hand at these uh, Sherman Show podcasts by now. <laughs> but Professor Schiller, since we have you here and on your way over to Davos, perhaps we can give the audience a sneak peek to what you have in store for them over the next few days. And from what we've, the little that we had a chance to, to chat beforehand, it seems like you have a pretty, pretty uh, grueling schedule uh, over the course of the next few days, you have six panels, is it? And 12, at least 12 interviews. I'm sure there's going to be one or two that <laughs> pop up along the way. So I guess what I could do is just throw out the, for the first question to both of you, or perhaps with uh, Professor Schiller as a chance to respond first. What you think the key issues are going to be for 2019? It could be economics and markets related. Just what are you thinking about that people should be paying attention to? Well, I think Charles Schwab's book, I think it was entitled The Fourth Revolution, about technology and how it's changing rapidly and generating fears that people are changing their behavior with. But I think that the World Economic Forum goes way beyond the announced theme. To me, it's, it's a big brainstorming session where they bring people who would maybe not talk to each other very often and sit them down, give them a very bland and general topic, like inequality or something, and then uh, we just talk. And people differ in their opinions of how productive that is. Robert Barrow, as a professor at Harvard, wrote a Newsweek column after his one try at the World Economic Forum and lambasted it as just a lot of cheap talk. Uh, nothing like this. So you just no graphs or table. It's just cheap talk. That was expensive to put those charts. I bet it was. <laughs> you have to pay all your data sources. Is why it's not all the government giving you the data, uh, right? But I have a different Im- impression of it. That I think it's uh, encouraging, kind of idealistic, grand thought, where you can just say things that you never had time to research, but you feel in your gut is probably right. I think it's productive. So, Jeff, for, from your perspective, I guess, for 2019 and your outlook, um, I know you hit on some of the topics up there. We talked about leverage. We talked about perhaps sentiment as well, how the sentiment, you know, perhaps both from investors, consumers uh, seem to be sh- shifting, perhaps slowing down, decelerating or even changing course. But this is against a backdrop, at least in the U.S., that seems to be fairly stable from an economic standpoint. Well, I think that that's the big difference is that I think of investing, there's three kind of main factors, if you would. And I know we talk about factor investing a lot these days, but there's fundamentals, 
right? Which I think ultimately come home to roost, right? That drives over the long run. Fundamentals are important. There's the technicals, which is supply of capital coming in and out. People drawing lines on charts like I showed a few of those today. But one of the more powerful things is sentiment, right? And that's why momentum tends to drive a lot of things in markets. And so there's the FOMO, the fear of missing out in stories. And there's also, it goes the other direction too. Sometimes we get extremely bearish altogether when things don't look as rosy. But in the U.S., as you mentioned, we came off, it has been the best year in terms of GDP growth in this part of the cycle, right, since the financial crisis. I'm not using just one quarter. I'm actually looking at, at kind of four consecutive quarters. It's done pretty well in 2018. But what got us there? We had tax cuts at the corporate level. We had tax cuts at the personal and individual level. And ultimately, what that led to was a very strong economy, strong earnings, good corporate profits. And the stock market went down for the year. People say, how can that be? Well, they're looking forward. And to ignore the base effects, to really not be shocked that profitability isn't going to increase as much. I mean, we all knew that. I think what's, what's really come in focus with a lot of folks is that CapEx wasn't large in this cycle. You know, that's what we're always told with tax cuts. It's going to stimulate. We're going to invest in the future. And it tends to be a bit short-sighted at times. But the sentiment rolled over, but the sentiment isn't, hasn't fallen off a cliff. And so I think what it is, is trying to say, okay, what is the next thing we're going to do to stimulate? Because we're addicted to stimulus at this point. We've been taught that through the quantitative easing. Uh, We look either to monetary policy, when monetary policy is becoming more restrictive, as it has been for the last couple of years, we went to the fiscal side. And never in history, actually, there was one time in history in the late 60s that we had a debt to GDP ratio that we do currently today that was outside of a recession. Right. Typically, when you're running six, eight, 10 percent of GDP or debt to GDP ratio for that year of the deficit, it's associated with the recession. You're trying to tackle it. But in in this case, we did it a bit early and we'll have to see how this plays out. But the amount of debt issuance out there, I mean, it almost looks like in order to continue growth at the two and a half to three percent range, we're going to need more debt, which is not good for the system. You know, talking about pricing forward, you mentioned that you know some of the the news have been priced in with the the profitability. I guess as people are starting to look at the earnings season coming up, and this particularly here in the U.S. after the first quarter, we should see the roll off effect of the fiscal stimulus that we had from the previous Tax and Jobs Act that was passed in the U.S. back in 2017 for the 2018 year. So. Perhaps if people are expecting and forward pricing in the fact that earnings should see a, a bit of a slowdown or drop off, does that explain some of the sell-off that we saw as of late, you know, November, maybe December in the uh, the stock markets? Well, I mean, we, what we've seen is multiple compression last year. That's why when the stock market goes down, earnings go up. That's multiple compression. Mm-hmm. We've even seen it in, in your uh, CAPE ratio that you use, Professor Schiller, where we still have an elevated level. I think it's roughly 28 or so today. Yeah. And what you see there is that's still a high level, but we got almost to what, like 32, 33, 33 even, yeah. right? Yeah, 33. And what so, was the highest? On a monthly basis, it was 44. That was in yeah. 2000. That's when I wrote my book. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. So that's why you get all these accolades about being so prescient and things. I think you were yeah, saying your book do, came out. Just looking at data, <laughs> yeah. at plots of data. Yeah. But so also one thing that does roll off in the CAPE ratio, because using 10 years of inflation adjusted earnings, we have the 2008 fourth quarter rolling off. Right. And what are the ramifications of that with the CAPE ratio? In the fourth quarter of 2008, earnings in S&P earnings per share were negative for one quarter. 
that's a 10-year average has 40 quarters in it. So we, we will soon be dropping that because we're now moving 10 years beyond that. But that will knock off, I think, about... We'll go down, if nothing else changes, from 28 on the Cape ratio to 26 or thereabouts. Right. I've always heard that being a criticism that... Right. Uh, one, of the, one or one of the criticisms of the Cape ratio is that you still include this bad earnings season from nine years ago, well, now ten yeah, years ago. Right? Jeremy Siegel at the Wharton School. <laughs> he's an old friend of mine, but we have a rocky friendship sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> We're friends. But he also doesn't like the write-offs. That there were a lot of them. But I say, well, maybe the write-offs were right, and they should have taken them off. Then he also points out that uh, the, a share of stock is like a call option on earnings, because if it's negative, it doesn't matter for individual firms that make up the index. So he wants to make a correction for the aggregation effect as well. Yeah. Uh, these things matter a little, but they don't change the fundamental uh, picture that stocks are still highly priced. And the U.S. is the most expensive market in the world. It's hard for me to say when I'm traveling abroad, watch out about investing too much in the U.S. <laughs> stock market. Well, it's also interesting. I mean, you mentioned Professor Siegel, and it's perhaps a running joke around that, you know, he's always bullish. So the first time I think he's... Not true, though. Yeah, not true. Not yeah. true. And then uh, it seems like in the last few months or so, or maybe it was, you know, towards the, the middle of last year, he stopped being as bullish and he got as bearish as I've ever seen him. And he said that perhaps it'll be a little bit more of a challenging year for the uh, U.S. equity market, but still probably positive. So... I guess with that in mind, you know, if we, we compare that with the current level of CAPE ratios at 28, how should investors be thinking about that level? Because I know oftentimes the CAPE ratio is misinterpreted. You know, you see it oftentimes uh, referred to as, you know, a valuation metric that could be used as a timing mechanism. Oh, CAPE is at 33, I have to sell, you know, or CAPE is at 28, I should be buying now because it's cheap. So how should people really be thinking about the CAPE ratio and what was its initial intent? Well, one thing you have to recognize, uh, way back in 1988, when John Campbell and I first wrote about the CAPE ratio, we found that it explains about a third of long-term returns, with data going back to 1881. So when the CAPE ratio is high, it's still, we, it could go higher. We, you, don't, you don't know. But it, it has a reduced probability of doing well. Uh, it's rare that the CAPE ratio is so high that it would predict negative returns. So at a level of 28, I haven't done the calculation, but the real return is probably something like 3 to 4% uh, expected. It's just not as high as it has been historically. And it is, I, you know, I worry about a drop in the market, but I, I certainly wouldn't attach any confidence to that. That's uh, 3 or 4%, let's say, per annum over the course of 10 For years? 10 years per okay. annum, right. Okay. Above inflation, right? You said real. real That's real, price, yeah. Right? yeah. So it, it's not too bad. I'm not alarmist. <laughs> <laughs> it's just as long as you're the long-term investor instead of thinking about it from just you know, trading. Yeah, so when, just... in 2000, when the paper ratio was 44, the market actually did fall in half in real terms from 2000 to 2002. Hmm. That was pretty dramatic. But if you held on for 10 years, <laughs> that would take you from 2000 to 2010, and you would, would have done all right. So we mentioned this book, I mean, the Cape Ratio peaking in, in 2000. And prior to this, we were talking a little bit about how irrational exuberance, you know, you had to rush the order because mm. you wanted to get it published in time because of what you had accurately forecast or predicted that there would be a market crash in the system. So you actually rushed it and it published on March right. 1999. 
you're working on a new book right now. Are you rushing it for any particular <laughs> no. reason to get the publishing or anything we need to be worried about? And if you can just yeah. talk about the subject matter and why you, uh, why you decided to publish this book. That earlier book I had, it was an academic publisher, Princeton University Press, and it takes them a year to get a book out if you go to, by the standard. So I said, I can't deal with a year. It's gonna, <laughs> something bad is going to happen before my book comes out. Uh, so we rushed that. But I don't feel the same rush today. There's, we're at a Cape ratio of 28 versus 44 back then. It's not so high. And so the reason a university press takes a year to get a book out is they're very careful. And so that's what we're doing. So my book, uh, it's called Narrative Economics, is coming out in September. And it's about, it sort of blends in with what you presented, but it's less data-oriented, it's more story-oriented, that all of these things have stories about them. So, for example, the Great Depression. I'm the first one to utter those words here yet so far. <laughs> that is a story that uh, you all know. Uh, in fact, virtually everybody knows this story. It's become a legend like William Tell or something like that. Not necessarily as pleasant a legend as that. And it was, if you look at a path, you could, I do these counts of uh, how often the term is used, uh, starting from the Great Depression. In the Great Depression, there, hardly anyone called it the Great Depression. And they didn't capitalize it, <laughs> like we do now. And then it just grew slowly. That story didn't get forgotten. The 1907 panic, people have no recollection of that at all. Or how about the 1893 panic, right? Almost zero recognition. But the Great Depression has become a legend that we all think about every day. Well, maybe not every day. And that thing really took off in the year 2008. Yeah. And it just <laughs> absolutely went on a tear. Every prime minister was talking about it, warning that if we don't do something, something will, bad will happen. And I think to some extent there was a self, the term self-fulfilling prophecy coined by Robert Merton in the 1940s. He was absolutely right. If you get everybody scared about something, they will cut back on their spending. Uh, and so that's what happened. So I, I think that part of what happened in the great financial crisis, which tends not to be mentioned by economists, was the renewed contagion of the Great Depression and the, the, the story of 1929 and then the Great Depression was on everybody's mind. This is a principle of psychology. If, if there's a social basis for attention, if you went back 12 years ago and asked someone about the Great Depression, they would say, yeah, why are you talking about this? I heard something about this. <laughs> and it's, several years later, they're all wondering if this is it. In fact, they even named it the Great Recession. That's right. That was tried, by the way, twice before. In 1976, Otto Eckstein at Harvard and D Data Resources International published a book called The Great Recession. That was the 73-75 stock market drop, but it didn't catch. Then in 1980s, the, 80, the twin recessions of 80 and 81-82, uh, there were various people who started calling that the Great Recession, but it didn't catch. My book is about things going viral. And the Great Recession on its third try in 2007 through 9 went viral. And people saw it as part of the same story of what happened in the, great, the old 1930s Great Depression. It, it certainly seems it's uh, 
with today's advancement in technology and then also the use of uh, social media that it's the ability to go viral is, as you mentioned, important for the for narrative to catch on. But it just seems like it can spread that much more quickly today than even 2007, you know, let alone the, the Great Depression. So, you know, some of the stories that revolve today, what do you what do you <laughs> think are the most important narratives that are going around? I mean, there's you can take your pick, you know, of, of all the things that or let me say something about the speed. It took big impetus upward in, I think it was 1839 when they invented the telegraph. <laughs> then they started doing weather forecasting. They had telegraph. That, that brought weather forecasting in because they, they could see weather patterns and they could watch a storm the go by. And then they had the telephone in 1876. Now it, it, everything was going viral at a faster rate. <laughs> and then they got radio in the 1920s. And then they got television in the 1940s or 50s. And now we've got the internet. But we've seen a succession of things that increase the rate of transmission. So now we're at a new height with the social media. We now have a president of the United States who makes daily announcements. (laughs) Policy (laughs) announcements. Now that's one of the narratives. It's Donald J. Trump. And others like him around the world are very much talked about. But in terms of trying to understand... The problem is there's so many narratives. My book is kind of a research proposal more than a final work that we have to pay more attention to these things. But there are some uh, things go viral in a matter of days and others take months or years. There's some long-term... One thing is our attention to confidence, which you, you referred to sentiment uh, in your talk. That has been a sort of attention to confidence in trying to understand the economy is something that has changed over the years. If you go back to the 19th century, they were very focused on one kind of confidence measure, a panic, a banking panic. But they didn't talk about consumer sentiment. That was just beyond them. It was no... But now we're all looking at each other and trying to judge others' confidence and then deciding that if others aren't confident, I'm going to pull back. Right. And so our watching each other, that wasn't the factor so much, except with regard to banking runs. But isn't that the classic story of the Keynes Beauty Contest? Oh, right. yes. Okay. Yeah. Right? You want to tell that story? Yeah, it's yeah. a wonderful yeah. story. It yeah. was in John Maynard Keynes' book, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money in 1936. And he was talking about the stock market. And he said, it makes me, reminds me, of a newspaper contest I saw. And he said the contest had, apparently a page of the newspaper had a 100 photos of pretty faces. And you, as a reader of the newspaper, would send in, you were asked to send in six, a choice of six out of 100 that you thought were the prettiest. And there's a lot of ways to choose six out of 100. (laughs) And then they tallied up who were thought to be the prettiest, and they would give a prize to the person who was closest to the most popular. And so he's... Uh, by the way, I tried to find this contest. Now everything is digitized. And I suspect he doesn't have it exactly right, but it was something like this, because I couldn't find it. But I found similar ones. But let's just take him at his word. There was some beauty contest. How do you play this game? If you're going to pick six prettiest faces, do you pick the faces that I think are the prettiest? No, you want to pick faces that other people would think the prettiest. But then Keynes said, well, wait a minute, that isn't what you do either. 
You want to pick the faces that you think that other people think that other people think are the prettiest. And then he said, that's what's happening in the stock market. You don't buy the companies that you think are, unless you're a really long-term trader. You don't pick the best companies. You pick the ones that you think that other people think that other people think maybe and that other people think are prettiest. And so that has to do... So what I'm saying about what happened in the last few weeks or since September, I guess, when the stock market peaked, there was some kind of talk that led people to try to judge other people's confidence or sentiment. And you'd hear people talking about it and you'd think some other people are worried and it, it, it kind of got magnified on television. And uh, did you ever talk about this in September? On t- <laughs> probably did. Yeah, well, a couple times. Yes, yes. <laughs> and you had these nervous listeners. Then they, they go around trying to assess how nervous other people are. And it just seemed to go viral. It was not a particular story, but it was a sense of uh, loss of confidence. And it goes viral over the whole world now. It's not just telephone and long distance calls were expensive. Now it, it's free to the world. So we have, um, looking at your charts, how often those different countries all move together. That might be through trade flows, but I suspect it's also through stories that are amplified around the world. Well, I think that, that's the thing when we talk about sentiment. It, there's the positive sentiment, there's the negative sentiment. And I think a lot of people forget that some of the best times to invest is when everybody has very negative sentiment. Absolutely. There, right? And so it overshoots both directions. And so... It's an overconfidence, I think, just in general. It's an overconfidence and belief that everything's going to be great. Remember 2017? You know, that was the year of the coordinated global growth. And now it's the coordinated global slowdown. And there's fear and, and somewhat a loathing out there in the marketplace. And so that's what a lot of investors missed is that the sentiment is good for entry points, right, too. You know, when you're talking about investing, you know, some of the more powerful things is just investing, you know, being in markets, continuing to add capital. And people forget that, you know, some of these periods of drawdowns, you know, perhaps that's why we've seen a rebound in, in risk assets is that people are reallocating capital. It's a fresh type of year. You know, in the, in the U.S., for instance, you know, the uh, retirement accounts, you know, can start reinvesting them again if you've maxed out for the year. And so people forget that the sentiment goes both directions. I recall back in March of 09 where the firm we'd worked out, Jeffrey Gunlock had put out a webcast that said, you're too bearish, right? And everybody was like, this is insane. The world's melting down. It's like, no, you're way too bearish. Here are the positive attributes. We can buy bonds that look risk-free almost, you know, with 30% yields, 30, three, zero. And now people are are out there looking at, and they're, they're clamoring for bonds that earn 30 basis points per annum, right? And they think there's no risk in the system at that point. And that's one thing we like to remind people is that, you know, one of the biggest risks you could ever make is when you think things are not risky, but they turn out to be risky. Right. And that's what causes panic. And that's what causes, you know, overreaction to the downside. And it affects experts as well. So the global, the World Economic Forum just put out a report on global risk assessment. And they found that they were surveying experts. Back in 2009, the experts were worried about financial crash <laughs> when it was over <laughs> yeah. after the fact right? yeah. Yeah. after the fact yeah so uh and, but now that now it's all switched to the environment maybe yeah. because of things like california wildfires and other catastrophes around the world that well it looks like it's going to bankrupt pg and e um you know they, they there was something that the uh the new fa- the governor put in before he left was that if a california entity is going to compare declare bankruptcy they have to tell their employees 10 business days beforehand. 
Seems like a good tip to the bond market, by the way. <laughs> so. uh, but uh, not shockingly, PG&E bonds traded down very significantly the day that they told their employees they may file bankruptcy in 10 days, uh, which will be another week. Happens, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it certainly is the rare investor that can sort through the sentiment, sort through the noise, and just really look at and see what the fundamentals are, are telling. But we're on this topic of narratives. I wanted to ask the question about the narrative around the Fed. I mean, the concept of the Fed put or the fact that the Fed is always ha, would step in to support risk assets as needed. And that, at least through Bernanke, Chairwoman, Chairperson Yellen, and now the question out there is, is there a Powell put out in the market? And, uh, you know, Sherman, I know you've spoken on this on CNBC a number of times. You've talked about the, the concept of autopilot, the pragmatic Powell versus Powell put. And What's the story there? We're now calling him Pivot Powell. We, Pivot we're keeping Powell. it alliterative <laughs> is what we've said, you know, so... The big thing about Jerome Powell when he was nominated, if you recall, the narrative, once again, to use the phrase, was that he was extremely pragmatic. He's a business person. He came from private equity. He'd been on Wall Street, um, that he understood markets and that he was going to respond accordingly. And then something changed, as usual with narratives. Something changed. And I would say it changed at the September Fed meeting. And when Powell came out and he, he was talking about it's a fluid policy, things are upbeat, employment, inflation. He was hitting all the key points, you know, giving a stellar performance as he had done the previous two press conferences. And then he got asked a question about quantitative tightening. And he said that, um, you know, he doesn't see anything wrong with $50 billion a month. And the market started to sell off, right, almost instantly. And then he had to recant those, or he didn't have to, but he chose to recant that phrase. And he talked about the fluidity of the decision-making process. It doesn't say anything. It just says, hey, we're a bunch of people with data points making decisions. That's really what he's saying to you, which is good because you want people at control of the wheel. And then what happened at the December press conference amid kind of uh, some turmoil in the equity markets and risk markets in general, he used this phrase autopilot, that we are dynamic in thinking about hiking because he had just hiked for the fourth time in 2018, the first time that we'd seen four hikes in a year. But when he talked about the, the quantitative tightening, he talked about it's on autopilot. And there's nothing investors want to hear worse than you already have a predetermined path for policy, right? And that you're not going to be responsive. And I still think it's, I think the quantitative tightening is more important to focus on than the interest rate hikes. Since the invention of the Fed in, what was it, 1914? Is that correct? The, the law is 13, opened its 13. doors in 14. Okay. okay, so I'm going to take that as a victory. We'll call it 14 then, yeah. <laughs> uh, but since that point in time, that has been the mechanism, the transmission mechanism to try to control the economy is through interest rate behavior and, and raising and lowering rates. And it became about this policy of transparency and making sure that, you know, we're going to communicate the policy. That was the Bernanke <laughs> vision, which Yellen uh, took on. And Powell did the same. But we've never went through a dose of quantitative tightening. We've never seen the Fed acquire the amount of assets, specifically as a percentage of GDP, on the balance sheet. And unfortunately, we only have one other data point really out there of a country trying to unwind the balance sheet they've never even tried yet, and that's Japan. And so the question becomes, well, it's an unconventional policy. And if it's unconventional, that means we don't know what's going to happen, no matter how many great minds get together in a room and you're going to be at the World Economic Forum. I think the Fed has roughly 700 PhDs. These are bright people that are trying to, to think these things through. But no one knows the outcome. And the thing is, when you're following an unconventional policy, the last thing you want to hear is that we just set a plan to set it and forget it. Don't worry about it. It's under control. We told you the path. Well, guess what? The market hated that. 
In fact, on the FOMC day, the stock market dropped almost 5.5% from its peak as Mr. Powell was talking about the word autopilot. I do remember going on CNBC that day and the, and the anchor asking me, he didn't say autopilot. I'm like, I think he did say autopilot. I think that's why the market went down 400 basis points in three minutes, right? Because we don't know what it is. So now we get him, uh, Mr. Powell coming back. He actually got together with Ms. Yellen and Mr. Bernanke. It was odd. Oh, that was, was a very odd. strange, strange conversation. I mean, look, they're friendly. They've worked together a long time. I mean, yeah. but it was, to me, it did nothing for me to give me any better feelings <laughs> about the policies. Yeah. But they said, don't worry about it. We're looking at it. No, it's not set. The policy's not set. And you got some good economic data prints on the jobs and, and things. And the stock market took off. And here we've been in a couple of weeks of a massive kind of uh, rebound from those levels. And so I do think it's very important to focus on quantitative tightening. I think it's important because these are bonds that need to sit in investors' hands. As we discussed earlier, you know, these are bonds that need to sit somewhere. They exist. They've been just sitting in non-tradable hands. They've been taken down by a price taker. And at some point, it has to manifest itself into the marketplace. And so as you keep putting that supply out, coupled with the idea that we're running a massive deficit in the U.S., I think we only missed by, what, $350 billion or so last year in our <laughs> estimates. I mean, it's not bad. You know, um, we, only, we only missed by 1.5% of GDP. And that was <laughs> in the good time. And so, you know, at the pace we're going, you're probably going to see a supply of treasuries between one, two and one point five trillion dollars this year. Right. And this year. And the Fed wants to put six hundred billion in the marketplace. That's a lot of new bonds that need to trade. And so I think that's why the market is, is struggling with Mr. Powell's policy at this point, because it's like, OK, we believe you're pragmatic, you got a handle on it. But there's this big unknown that you keep ignoring. And the only time you come back to it is when the market corrects. So. That was a long-winded answer to say, I don't know if there's a Powell put, right? <laughs> but I definitely know that the market doesn't like when he ignores it. The good news is Mr. Powell committed to having a press conference after every Fed meeting this year. So we get to hear from eight times. So maybe if you're a trader, you're going to like that. But maybe you're not going to like it, right? Because you're going to get more words and more parsing of the words of the Fed. But it's important because this is a policy that's unconventional, it's unprecedented, and we don't know the ramifications. All we know is more bonds are coming. And... The question is, can the Fed slow down the bond sales or the roll-off or reinvest more assets if needed and quickly enough? That's the big question. So with that influx of debt, I mean, what, how does that affect interest rates in, in uh, government debt in the U.S.? It doesn't sound very positive. Well, I, I, would, I would go back to macro. The first class I took in macroeconomics, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't fortunate enough to take it from Professor Schiller. But they draw this little line, and they, one of them is called supply, one of them is called <laughs> demand, Right. And it's basic tenant, that's how you think about markets. And forget, you know, policies, it, you know, inflation and all that. Simple supply and demand. If I have an excess supply of securities that don't have a marginal bid for them, right, the price needs to go down to find that marginal bid. That's what it comes down to. So as, as you've read a few times in the Wall Street Journal, as prices go down, yields go up. Mm. That's, I mean, that's the basic place to start. Okay. Yeah. What do you yeah, think, Professor? That very basic diagram, supply and demand, <laughs> with the cross. Like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It I, love back, to, I love to put that up there every It time, goes yeah. back to Alfred Marshall's textbook called Principles of Economics, published 1890. And that diagram just li lives on. Yeah. It, it's, it's a great very, narrative, it's right? A great, it is a narrative, yeah. sort of, because it's so stare-in-your-face basic. Right. And you're right, by the way, about this. It might well be that people aren't focusing on the huge number of new bonds that have to be held by someone 
Right. Well, I think people say, well, you know, you have low yields in Europe, you have low yields in Japan, they can't go up. But we see that that's what currency differentials are for. They correct for this mechanism through interest rate parity, right? I mean, that's, that's another financial tenant we have. And so from that perspective, yields can continue to press high. I remember three years ago, people saying that there has to be a convergence between U.S. and German 10-year yields. And the, the spread has continued to widen over the last, you know, three years or so. And so, again, is there an upper bound? It will set through currency differentials. Well, the scary thing with all this debt that the U.S. government at least is putting out is this is all absent an economic slow, a severe economic slowdown. This is absent a recession. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's a pretty scary thought based on the numbers that you threw out, $1.25 trillion plus another $600 billion rolling off. You can easily attack on perhaps another half trillion to a trillion if we actually start getting into the recession and the government starts to pump out debt to pull us out of the recession as they have in years past. What everybody's been talking about, the most recent narrative is what the government shut down in the U.S., that this empowers the, the Democrats to get a deal on the table for an infrastructure plan. Right. And everything. Like, that's that's the next bullish case for the market is that we'll get stimulus through infrastructure. It sounds great. And what was the number thrown out during the Trump campaign? One trillion dollars. Seems a little light that, now. Yeah, it seems a little light. <laughs> One. And, you know, we've not seen progress. We're, we just started. This is the two-year anniversary today of, of Trump's inauguration as president. And what you're seeing is that year three is typically when people are signing their own policies. So people are, have been extremely bullish that this idea comes through. And that, I've heard that as a story for why there's risk assets have come back. Is The U.S. is going to get it together this, you know, having a government shutdown is a good thing because it forces President Trump and, Pre- and Premier Xi to get together and, and do a trade deal. I mean, that's very optimistic thinking, right? Given that we've seen no evidence of that to date. But I am fearful that we do an infrastructure bill at a trillion dollars. I mean, uh, it'll be financed over a few years. It's probably public and private, which means we get cronyism. It's inefficient use of capital once again. But it's very simple to understand, though. I mean, it's much easier for me to understand why you'd want to do a trillion-dollar infrastructure build versus doing a trillion-dollar tax cut. That's right. So someone used the R word earlier. I think it was actually me. I want to um, <laughs> see, yeah. just take a... <laughs> the R word is already a euphemism. It, right. it, it came in in 1937 with the 37, 38, and then Franklin Roosevelt called it a recession. And someone said... What's this word recession? <laughs> Can't you speak? It's another depression. He wouldn't say it. <laughs> uh, it has to sound better. But then so, the R word then is, the R is, word is another be... connotation of recession, but not wanting to say it. So right? we have to find another euphemism. Okay. So what's the euphemism going to be? <laughs> We've tried the Great Recession. We, we need yeah, a marketing recently. person here. <laughs> you always got to put the better uh, face on the picture. But where do you guys think we are in the economic cycle? I mean, if you asked someone two years ago, they thought we'd be in the recession already. I know it's hard to predict. And in fact, you know, the recessions are usually declared in hindsight rather than uh, predicted by the MBER, National Bureau of Economic Research, I believe it is. Um, But outside of, let's just using the R word, if you want to create a new euphemism, that's great. But where do you think we are in this stage of the economic cycle? Because I think come June or July, it will officially be the longest expansion in U.S. history. Right, right. So... How many more months do we have? How many more well, First years? of all, I point out that economists are spectacularly unsuccessful in giving much advance warning of recessions. They can do three... It's like the weather. The weather only goes out a week or two, right? With, uh, Inaccurately, with, too. Yeah, yeah. 
And but but with recession forecasting, they they haven't a clue about a year ahead. I'm basing this on the Philadelphia Fed has a series of fork, uh, recession probabilities given by a, a survey of experts, which goes back to the 1950s, and uh, studies have shown that they are unable to uh, forecast. But anyway, if you look at the latest Philadelphia Fed survey, the probability is very low in the fourth quarter. So people, so they're not. Pre- if they were predicting something, it wouldn't mean much anyway, and they're not <laughs> predicting anything. <laughs> so it still doesn't mean much, right? But for me, yeah. I, I uh, then the, the other problem, you're right about the the June of 2019, just a few months away, will be if we haven't peaked yet, will be a record long expansion, and so that makes me think that there is maybe some periodicity to. It's called the business cycle. It's not a very accurate, and it seems to be stretching out. The longest expansion was not long ago. It was from 1990 to 2000. I'm, I'm sort of thinking that it, it, it's, yeah, the, the fact that it has gone a long time makes me raise my probability somewhat. Also, that the, there was a narrative that was a lot of attention in uh, around September of uh, August of last year about the longest bull market ever. And uh, it's hard to define. What's, how do you measure a bull market? But that's another thing that's on people's mind. Longest expansion, longest bull market. Uh, and then housing prices have been going up. Uh, I, I, I count it in the United States. We're talking U.S. here. The, uh, I have data back to 1890 on home prices, real inflation-corrected home prices. And the boom that we are now in is the third largest since, uh, since 2012. In magnitude of price or in duration? In total increase. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the longest was 1997 to 2000. And I'm sorry, 2006, yeah. yeah. That's also feeding into... Uh, people still remember that the story of the last... <laughs> certainly remember. And so it, it becomes natural to start thinking home prices are going down. You, and you're seeing some, as, uh, some of your data, I thought. You showed the NAHB uh, Builders Confidence Index, right. which has been going down. So it could it could be a, a turning point like that again. So I, I wouldn't be surprised by another recession. Yeah, isn't it? It's kind of strange. You talk about it as you know that we we've gotten to these longest record you know lengths in terms of the equity market performance. You had these long periods of housing market performance, and then we talk about the sentiment, right? So all of a sudden, it's like if people just start thinking that oh, we've hit this duration. Oh, it's this long. It's never happened. It can't continue. It almost is, once again, the right. self-fulfilling prophecy right. you mentioned earlier, right? Where people just make it happen by saying, it can't go on. I need to get out or I need to do something different. Yeah, that's how we differ from the weather <laughs> forecasters. <laughs> we actually have some power over it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we're getting close to the end here. I want to allow the audience to ask a couple of questions. And Allison will walk around with a, with a mic if you want to ask a question. But you want to follow up with one last question here, Sam? Actually, I would like to follow up with one segment of our podcast that we always have, and um, it's called Sherman Says. Uh, For those of you in the audience today, what happens is I'll give out a term or a phrase, and with that, I'll alternate between Jeff Sherman and Professor Schiller with hopefully a one- or two-word response. It's a verbal Rorschach test, if you will. (laughs) 
So what I'll do right now is I'll start out with it's his favorite. It's my, my favorite least part favorite. Of it, yeah. So it exposes uh, our inner personalities. It is actually you know, our inner weaknesses. Yeah, it's uh, insanely difficult to do on the spot as well as I've been on the receiving end a few times. <laughs> but uh, we'll start out with Mr. Sherman with trade, peace, Professor Schiller, Brexit, polarization, mm. fondue, <laughs> Switzerland, <laughs> hot cocoa. Barclays, they, they always give it to me. Why is that? I've noticed <laughs> yeah, they know. always give you cocoa they, wherever you they, go. I said I liked cocoa, and I wondered why more people don't. Yeah. No. Yeah. And ever since, they always offer me cocoa. <laughs> they don't forget. I don't know yeah. why. Well, we'll have some cocoa yeah. brought over if yeah. you want. I don't see the Barclays guy, but you know, perhaps we can have water, He's tea, probably or coffee. out getting cocoa right now, right? <laughs> well. I've ne- never offered cocoa, by the way, uh, you know, from Barclays. You haven't, it's strange. You, you haven't developed the reputation. Yeah, I guess so. And He's it's, got a reputation, but uh, it's not for cocoa, we Ooh. should have it here in Switzerland, isn't that a? Is, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> well, I know in the U, the Nestle makes Swiss Miss, Swiss Miss right? Yeah. Is that what you're thinking yeah. of? Perhaps? See, that's, that's another it's a popular narrative. Right? Yeah. <laughs> see, this is how this devolves every time we yeah, do. Yeah, it's usually uh, it's the verbal war again, as you see. So we just devolve and go on tangents. But uh, let's see, where were we? I'm going to pick this back up with uh, Jeff Sherman and U.S. economy expanding. Global economy. Interrelated. Commodities. Upside. What did I just ask? Commodities. All right. Uh, U.S. equities. Yeah, you don't need to think of upside and commodities together. I know. Yeah. <laughs> U.S. equities. This puts me in a difficult spot. I, I, <laughs> Cape 28. <laughs> I'll just say overpriced. Yeah. We have, a, we have a gentleman at our office that his retirement strategy is Cape 45, he says. He says he's retired when the Cape hits 45 because 44 is the record. So that's his strategy. That's a risky strategy. It's only he's only there. 24, so he's, right. he's, he's got a long way to go. <laughs> Sorry. Back to Mr. Sherman with U.S. dollar. Peaking. Childhood nickname. <laughs> I'm trying to remember here now. <laughs> you remember my childhood nickname? Yes, sir. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I did have one. What was it? Maybe it had bad connotation. I'll just go with Bobby. <laughs> yeah, all, right. all right. Well, usually if you like it, it doesn't stick as your nickname. It's the one that you don't like <laughs> that people right. take to stick with. Yeah. Right. And that wraps up my questions for Sherman Says. All right. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. For those of you who are listening to this recorded live podcast, it's always weird to say it's live and it'll be recorded. But thanks again for tuning in. Uh, but I'd like to open it up to the audience for questions. Um, we, uh, we likely will not air your questions on the Sherman Show, so feel free to ask whatever you'd like. By the way, I was called Whitey after a famous athlete that who I was not very re- representative of. It was a joke. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, there was a gentleman in my neighborhood that went by the name of Whitey. His name was Whitey Bulger when he was arrested. He was the, right. the famous uh, criminal out of the Boston market. <laughs> okay. I don't think there's any, con- I'm not trying to draw any parallels. <laughs> and that's yeah. truly not the neighbors you usually keep. So yeah. it's, uh, he was in hiding. Neighborhood feels a lot less safe today. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. I've, got, I've got a question for you. If yeah. we look back since World War II, each time you have the recession in the U.S., the budget deficit goes by around minus 4%. The last recession, I think the increased budget deficit was around 65 So we started from minus 2 all the way down to minus 8.5. Yep. Does it mean we could have double-digit budget deficit in the U.S. if we had a severe recession? Absolutely. So that's, that's the thing. I, was, I had an interview with Professor Schiller earlier. We were talking to some media. And 
they asked recession, recession, and I thought the professor made a good point. Well, what type of recession? Is it a mild recession? Is it a normal whatever that means? Or is it a severe recession? And I think most people would argue that the 2008, we now call it the global financial crisis, putting the word crisis in there kind of connotes the idea that it was pretty severe. Um, so I do think that the policy response will be extreme, um, and I could easily see it being doubled. I think we actually peaked at the, at the peak in the deficit, almost got to 10% of GDP uh, back in 2008. And so the question is, you use the official numbers, you use the budget projections, um, but what happens is it tends to be worse than the projections. So um, I think it will have a two number in front of it, and it will end with a trillion. You know? yeah, I mean, with that, as but though that being said, it could be two trillion, it could be two point nine nine trillion. <laughs> Who knows? It depends on what the baseline is going into it. But um, I think that the response mechanism would be severe. Yeah. Right. Well, I was going to say. I mean, right now we're sitting on the GDP Oops, of uh, yeah. of uh, he's on that's, a tight uh, That's the viral. Uh, that's the viral <laughs> yeah. memes going out yeah. for the narrative. But it's uh, right now we're sitting on a GDP of what? I think it was on there at twenty one point two trillion. If the numbers that you said before, I mean, again the the. Deficit numbers seem to be underestimating the amount of debt that is increased in the in the system uh, by the U.S. government. Because if you take a look at the year-over-year debt change, it's actually right around 1.35 trillion. If you annualize the most recent three, I believe, months, you're looking closer at the 1.85 trillion for 20, fiscal year 2019 on an annualized basis. And that's basis. without a recession. With, so, I mean, easily that double digit looks yeah. within reach. That, that, puts, that number puts you at roughly 8% of, G, of GDP right now. Again, it's only three months. It's dangerous to extrapolate that. Um, but that seems to be the path we're on currently. So would you share Red Dalio's view that uh, the dollar could easily drop by 20 to 30%? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we have a bearish dollar stance, is that we think in the medium term, you may get some kick if there is the flight to quality, but what if in this crisis the dollar or the, the treasuries aren't the flight to quality assets because they're causing the problem, right? And so that's the thing that we have to think about. Uh, remember in the 90s that bonds and stocks were positively correlated, right? Uh, when bond yields went up and bond prices dropped, stock prices dropped and vice versa. And so you know, there was a, a point where people asked, why do you even own bonds at all? And so um, you have to remember that not every cycle looks the same. And again, these relationships that risk parity have been built on um, are fragile at the end of the day. Correlations aren't stable. We know that across all markets. And so, um, you know, we could see, you know, yields going up and the dollar going down. Right. But I mean, just printing money should be detrimental to the dollar. We have to have more than one question or it's not called questions and answers. If you want, we can have cocktails. It's fine. You know. This is the least depressing talk I think I've given in Switzerland. So I'd like to thank <laughs> Professor Schiller. Does anybody have any questions? Well, I'd like to thank my colleagues for putting all this together. Sam, thanks for coming up and hosting. Professor Schiller, you're always generous with your time, so thank you so much. I know you've got a busy week, so thank you for taking a couple hours and spending with us today. Okay? My pleasure. Thanks, everyone, and we'll be out in the foyer afterwards. Thank you. Crushed it. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. 
No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Double Line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, Double Line Capital.